All right, good morning, everyone. Great to see you today. If you're watching us online this morning, welcome. We're glad you're joining us here at our 950 service, wherever you are. If you're out in the concourse, uh, thanks for joining us today. If you're in overflow, we, we greet you as well this morning. As you just saw, we're continuing a, a teaching series that's called That's a Great Question. What we're doing is every week we're taking a question that has to do with a, a contemporary cultural issue or a biblical theological issue, and we're trying to address that from a, from a biblical perspective to give you the opportunity to talk to people in your relational world and share with them what you believe about that. And today's topic is, should Christians partake of alcohol? Uh, Non-controversial issue in the life of the church, right? I mean, some of you are sitting there going, what, what's the controversy? The, the Bible says, you know, it's okay to drink alcohol. And some of you are going, well, what's the controversy? Christians shouldn't drink. And some of you are going, oh, wow, where's this going today? <laughs> Pastor's going to get all preachy on us and all judgy on us and condemn us for uh, all that we do. But that's not the case. I want to share my heart with you this morning as pastor, and hopefully you'll receive some of that. Lord, thank you this morning for the power of your truth. Thank you this morning, Holy Spirit, that you are the spirit of truth. And Lord, let there be a great marriage today between the word and the spirit in our hearts, that we would recognize your plan for each of our individual lives on this topic. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we, uh, we start by, by really asking the question, as Christians, how do we go about making a decision about anything that we would participate in? Not, not just alcohol, but, but what are the things that guide us in our decision-making? And this is a great topic today for, for child dedication. It's a great lesson. It's a great teaching for parents to hear as you begin to raise your kids. Now, we are constantly filling this place with college students. This, this is a great message for you today as you're working through the challenges on campus of, of dealing with alcohol, dealing with drugs, dealing with some of those issues, as you begin to formulate your own biblical worldview of what's right for you in your life. Um, so how do we, I want to share with you quickly four unreliable reasons. Say Say unreliable unreliable, not reliable, unreliable reasons for deciding to participate in anything as a Christian. These are, these are not reliable uh, sources uh, to, to, to lean on. The first is, well, it's legal. It's legal. If you're 21 years old, it, it's legal. But there's other things in our society that are legal that are not good for Christians. Okay? Abortion is legal. We wouldn't encourage anyone to have an abortion. Uh, pornography is legal. Uh, and we believe that's not morally acceptable for, for Christian people. So just because something is legal doesn't mean that it's the best course for your life. Uh, the, the second thing is the Bible doesn't prohibit it. The Bible doesn't say you can't do it. All right. Well, the, the Bible doesn't say everything that you can and can't do. The, the Bible just says some things are not wise. Some, some things are foolish. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not be lazy. That's not one of the commandments, right? And yet if you lead a life of laziness, there's not a lot of wisdom in there. You're going you're gonna to struggle in your life. The Bible doesn't say you can't be unteachable. But if you're unteachable, if you don't take correction from people in life, it's going to be a difficult life for you. So, so just because um, it's not prohibited in, Christ, in, in Scripture doesn't mean that it's the wisest choice for your life. The third unreliable uh, reason is other Christians do it. <laughs> that might be the worst reason, right? Other Christians do it. Well, you can't rely on other Christians uh, to lead you in the right direction. They may be missing something. And, and the fourth thing is uh, unreliable reason. It, it, it's my right I have a right to do that. Well, it, it, it may be your right, 
but it may not be productive. It, it may not be fruitful. You have a right to not work. Where's that going to take you, right? I mean, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. So, so you have a right to a lot of things. And sometimes I feel, especially in America, we get so entrenched in our rights that we lose sight of godly wisdom. We lose sight of the path that God might have us on. So I want to give a little background information as we approach this topic. I want to go back to biblical times, whether that's New Testament times or Old Testament times. And I want to begin by saying that the wine that we read about in scripture was fermented wine. There was an alcoholic element in the wine. A lot of people would like to just, just say that, well, it was grape juice. It was just pure grape juice. No scholar believes that the, that's why people got drunk in the Bible. You don't get drunk on grape juice. There, there was some fermentation to the juice or to the wine that you read about in scripture. But wine was different then than it is now. It was diluted. Okay? So it was mixed with water. You can, you can read in the Proverbs, you know, wisdom is personified and it says that she mixes her wine. Well, that means that she's diluting it with water. Sometimes it was diluted with two parts of water. Sometimes the, 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 the wine was, the fermented wine was diluted with three parts of water. Sometimes it was even higher than that. Sometimes it was extremely diluted. So it wasn't as potent as beer and wine and hard liquor are in our culture today. Third thing is, Jesus drank some form of fermented wine. Jesus drank wine that had some level of alcohol in it. Well, but we have to take the next step and say Jesus never got drunk. Jesus never came close to getting drunk. How do we know that? Because Christ lived a sinless life. And drunkenness is not part of a sinful life. So we know that, that while Jesus, because he, he came to identify with us in our humanity in every way, he ate the food that we eat, he, he drank the cultural drink, and growing up in Israel, diluted wine was part of the culture. So he, he partook of that. Jesus turned water into some degree of fermented wine at a wedding in Cana. Uh, some people like to say he just turned it into grape juice. He didn't turn it into grape juice. The, the, the story is clear about that. It says that the host says most people give the really, you know, expensive aged wine at the beginning. And then when their guests have had a little bit of that and maybe are, are feeling it a little bit, then they bring out the really diluted wine. But in this case, they say, they say Jesus, you, you, you brought out the best wine last. Obviously, there was some fermentation. We don't know how much. We don't know what degree of, of, of alcohol content was in the wine that Jesus changed, the water that Jesus changed into wine. Scholars disagree on that level of fermentation in the wine that Jesus, but there was some alcohol in it. Uh, that's clear. The only prohibition regarding alcohol in scripture is drunkenness. The only law, if you will, about uh, partaking of alcohol as a Christian is not getting drunk. If, if abstinence was the law, if abstinence, not having any alcohol was the rule, there would be no commandments to not get drunk because you wouldn't get drunk if the commandment was not to have any, right? So the, the commandment isn't abstinence. The commandment is not getting drunk. Now, while scripture doesn't prohibit alcohol consumption, I want to share with you this morning my heart. I want to share with you why I believe the, the best course of life for the believer is to abstain from alcohol. And, and I want to say this. I don't have a dog in the fight. I, I really don't. Um, I, um, my, my 
I didn't grow up with an alcoholic dad that beat me and my mom. I, I don't know what that's like. I don't have an ax to grind because my dad was an alcoholic. My daughters didn't get date raped from someone that was under the influence of alcohol. Okay? I've never been in a car accident and hit by an alcoholic or drunk driver. That, that, that's not happened to me. On the other hand, I'm not some disconnected shrew that doesn't understand what alcohol does. I went through my party years in high school and college. I went through that. I understand what it means to be drunk. I understand what it means to be hungover. I understand what it means to, to kind of be addicted to that. I understand that. So I'm not standing up here in any way judging those of you that, that share in or participate in alcohol or, or like I can't connect to you because I can because I've been there and I've done that. But I'm on, I'm on another side now, a side that I prefer. It's called abstinence. I'm on a side where I don't partake of alcohol. That's my choice and I choose to do that. And I think that's a better lifestyle for me and I think it's probably a better lifestyle for most Christians. So what does the Bible say about alcohol? I want to give you a few points just to think about, it, okay? Uh, if, you, if you choose to partake of alcohol as a 21-year-old or older Christian, uh, I will not judge you. I will love you, extend grace to you. I, I will accept that as your choice. Uh, I, I'm, I, I shared a few weeks ago a sermon on Mother's Day about uh, what, what do I wish I knew before I became a parent? Well, what are some things I wish I knew before I became a parent? I just want to share my heart with you, my experience with you about what I've seen in the life of the church and in our culture related to this. And maybe some of these principles will help you formulate your own decision about alcohol. The first is this, alcohol stimulates lust. Alcohol stimulates lust. Now, the Bible says that because of the fall, man's fall in sin, and, and our hearts are fallen in sin, that, that our hearts are already lustful by nature. Your heart is already filled with lust. Alcohol doesn't create lustful thoughts. Alcohol exposes them. Let me say it again. Alcohol doesn't create a spirit of lust in you. That's already there. What it does is it, it stimulates it, it exposes it, it enhances it, and it encourages, encourages it. So James says in James 1.14, each person is tempted to sin when they are carried away and enticed by their own what? Their own lust that's already resident in their heart. Right? You don't have to create it. Alcohol doesn't create it. It's, it's there. You are led into sin by the lust that's already in your heart. All right. Um, so we skip to a, a verse in Proverbs 23, verse 33, and it's talking about a person that's under the influence of alcohol. And it says, your eyes will see strange things. Your, your eyes will see things from a different perspective, from a lustful perspective. You will think lustful thoughts toward people. And then he says, and your mind will say or speak or suggest perverse things to you. Your mind will begin to talk dirty to you. Your mind will begin to talk in an unclean or unspiritual way to you. Your mind will begin to imagine impure actions. You will begin to think about what it would be like to do this. It's already in your heart. Alcohol just brings it to the surface. You think with lustful thoughts toward people. You, you, you imagine impure activity in your life. John Gill, an English Baptist theologian, says this. Being inflamed with wine, he's talking about this verse. Men shall look upon women, even other men's wives, and lust after them. As a result of being under the influence of alcohol. Or women looking at men. It goes both ways. 
Matthew Henry says the eyes, when someone's under the influence, grow unruly or rebellious or don't want to be restrained and, and behold strange women to lust after them and so let in adultery into the heart. Now, adultery was already there, but the desire to act on that is enhanced by alcohol. Um, the desire to commit adultery or fornication when you're under the influence of alcohol intensifies. That, that, that's why sex on college campuses and alcohol or drugs go hand in hand because one leads to the other. So Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, a word that we use all the time, right? You used that last week in, in conversation with your family. Don't be, don't have debauchery in your life. Debauchery is kind of an old word that, that just means, it, it, it has an evil connotation, but it means excess, excessive. Uh, so, so in other words, it means moving beyond a set boundary, being excessive with something that's not spiritually appropriate. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to sinful excess in your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't come under the, the power or control of alcohol because that's going to lead you to excessive sinful living. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, which leads you to a life of worship. Sing to one another psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. What does alcohol do in the human heart? It weakens our moral convictions. Alcohol weakens the convictions. Convictions are values, things that you want to do in your life, things that you want to be, things that you hold to that are true. Alcohol causes us to lose the ability to resist sin. Alcohol removes the guardrails of our life. So there's nothing to, to keep us from doing those things. So when we are under the influence of alcohol, we eat more than we would. We eat, we eat different types of food that we might not eat because we, when we're sober, we're more conscientious about that. But when the guardrails are lifted, when the conviction is lifted, now we participate in things that we probably wouldn't participate. So we, we eat too much. We say too much, amen? <laughs> we say more than we'd like to. Uh, so, so, sometimes we, we use words that we, that we wouldn't use if we were sober. Sometimes introverted people, quiet people, just can't stop talking when they're under the influence of alcohol. Because we, we speak more excessively and we say things that maybe aren't right or maybe aren't prudent when we're under the influence of alcohol. We spend too much money. When you're under the influence of alcohol, it's like, hey, this round's on me, right? I'll, I'll, buy, I'll go into debt if I have to. I just want to, you know, buy everybody's food and buy everybody's drink. You wouldn't do that if you were sober. I know you. <laughs> you're more stingy than that. But get a little alcohol in your system, you become pretty generous with your friends and family and you'll just, you'll spend more. You'll flirt too much as well. You'll flirt excessively when you're under the influence. And you'll, you'll take risks and chances that you wouldn't take if you were sober. It's called liquid courage. You feel emboldened to do things that you ordinarily wouldn't do. See, alcohol stimulates lust in our lives. It weakens our convictions. So, so, so people, I'm, I'm including myself in this because I used to do this, people under the influence of alcohol do dumb things and, and then they say, that's not what I'm like, right? And done that? That, that? That's not me. No, no, that is you. Remember, alcohol didn't create that, that thought in you. It, it simply encouraged it. That's you, without moral restraint. That's you 
without any self-control. That's who you are. It's just coming out. Which is why sobriety is so important. Because with sobriety, you have a sense of self-control. You have a sense of governing your own life. When you get under the influence of alcohol, you lose that sense of restraint. You begin to step into areas excessively that you really don't want to step into. That's what your, li- your heart looks like with no self-control in life. So Paul says this. If alcohol stimulates lust, here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. Uh, run from anything and everything that stimulates youthful lust. Run from it. Don't go toward it. Run away from it. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship, the friendship, the community of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Choose your friends wisely. Choose your community well. Because as go your friends, there goes your destiny. So choose people that love the Lord. Choose people that that make the Lord their their highest value because that's where you're going to go. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord from pure hearts. Number two, alcohol is highly addictive. It's highly addictive. People tell me this. Well, Jeff, I I just drink in moderation. I'm like, wow, that's almost unbelievable because the very nature of alcohol makes it almost impossible to be moderate because the more alcohol you have, the more you want. It's really tough to to cut it off and say, it's a hot day, I'm having a beer. And you have a couple beers. Once you have a couple beers, you want to have even more than that. It's unlike food, right? Food is is something that as good as the food is and, and as much as you like eating it, you get to a point where you're kind of full and you really don't want any more, right? Not like that with alcohol. Alcohol becomes more enticing more desirable, the more you have. The better you feel from alcohol, the more alcohol you want to feel even better. Proverbs 23, verses 31 and 32 says, don't look at wine, don't continue in wine when it's red, when it's, when it's appealing, when it sparkles, when it's like magical, when it's like inviting you to have more, when like this is the nectar of the gods, this is the, this is the greatest thing I've ever tasted, this is the greatest feeling I've ever had. I love this feeling and I just want more. It's time to stop when alcohol wants to pull you in to more and more, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly, because why? In the end, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Interesting, it's a liar. Alcohol's a liar. It, it, it tells you, you, you know, um, if, you, if you think this is good, wait till you have more. But the reality is when you have more, you feel worse. So it, it draws you in. It sparkles in the cup. It's like, man, this is fantastic, and I just want more. People that say, I, I can just have one beer, man, that's it, man. They are incredibly controlled people because the nature of alcohol is addictive. It draws you in to desire more. You don't want to stop. Then it goes on in, in, in the same verse in Proverbs, and it's talking about uh, being out at sea in a ship and being drunk. And it says, you, you, you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, not in the water, but on the, on the deck. You, you're, you're unstable. You can't control yourself. The ship is, is, is rocking back and forth, and you can't walk. You're just going to fall down. So you just crawl down on the ground and lay down so you don't get slammed from side to side because your life is out of control. The best thing you can do is to, to be safe 
is just to lay down. Like one that lays down in the middle of the sea, out of control, or, or one who, who lies on the top of a mast, on top of that pole on the ship. That's the most dangerous place to be in a storm because that, that, that mast just goes back and forth as the, as the ship rocks and it's precarious to be in that place. But when you're drunk, you're, you're like up there and you put yourself in the most dangerous and vulnerable position you possibly could. He goes on, he says, they, they, they beat me. They abused me, but I didn't even know it. They struck me. I, I, I didn't become ill. When will I awake? And when will I awake? What am I going to do? I don't want to do that again. I don't want to lay down and puke on the, the deck of the boat again. I, I don't want to get up in the mat. Boy, that was scary. That was horrible. I don't want to do that again. But what does it say we want to do? I want another drink. I will seek another drink. Because it's highly addictive in life. Your life out of control one night. And the next night, do the exact same thing. I know from experience. I would wake up in the morning hungover, sick, sometimes sleeping in my puke, wake up with a headache, wake up saying, full of shame, thinking about what I did the night before, vowing that morning I will never do that again. Anybody do that? I, I'm never doing that again. By noon, got my stomach back have a little bit of lunch, feeling pretty good. By happy hour, I'm ready to rock and roll again. I'm ready to go and do, do it, it again. again. Why? It's, it's so, so highly addictive. addictive. I forget about all of the pain and all of the shame because I want another drink. I, I don't remember what it was really like. So Paul says this about addiction in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, he says, he says you say, and, and now Paul was quoting them. They were, they were misquoting Paul. They were misunderstanding Paul. Paul said, you're free from the law. They thought that meant I can do whatever I want. There's no moral boundaries. Paul says, you say, quote, I'm allowed to do anything. And Paul says, well, even if that was the case, not everything's good. Remember we said if it's legal, if it's not prohibited in script, doesn't mean it's good. Paul says, it may not be good for you. And, and even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a what? Slave to anything. Alcohol makes you a slave. Alcohol is highly addictive. So you're choosing to do the very thing that scripture says not to do. Enslaving yourself, coming under the control of something other than Christ. We are slaves. We are to be slaves. Slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Under his control and the control of the Holy Spirit all the time. Not the control of alcohol. And Paul says the very thing that scripture teaches us not to do, become a slave, we're willing to do with alcohol. Number three, alcohol is associated with sinfulness. This has to do with our reputation. A Christian's reputation shouldn't be associated with alcohol. You should care about your reputation. We call it in the church your witness. You should care about your witness. You should care about how non-Christian people see you. You, you should care about their perception of you. You should care about what they think of you. you. You don't have to be governed by their opinion, but you should care because you're trying to lead them to Christ. You're trying to be the absolute best example to them of what a Christian is. So, so you need to be circumspect. You need to be mindful. You need to be intentional about your life in public because your reputation matters. People sometimes in, in, in the Old Testament made what was called a, a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was a commitment or a vow, a, a public proclamation that, that you are going to separate yourself from worldly things and seek the Lord more diligently. You are going to pursue a life of holiness. 
You could do that for 30 days. You could do that for 60 days. You could do that for a year. You could do that for a lifetime. There, there are certain individuals in scripture that had a lifelong Nazarite vow. John the Baptist was one of those. Uh, the prophet Samuel was one of those. The judge Samuel. Here's what the vow entailed. Uh, if any of the people, either men or women, take the special vow of a Nazarite, setting themselves apart to the Lord in a special way, they must give up wine and other alcoholic drinks. They must not use vinegar made from wine or other alcoholic drinks. They must not drink fresh grape juice. It's not fermented. They must not eat grapes or raisins. As long as they are bound by the Nazarite vow, they are not allowed to eat or drink anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the grape seeds or the skins, <laughs> not even the appearance that anything could possibly have alcohol content in it. You are to totally remove yourself to wholeheartedly seek the Lord. It's interesting to me that one of the things that's removed in a, in a life of holiness is alcohol and the influence of alcohol. In fact, that's the first thing that's mentioned. Not even the grape seeds or the skins. Another element was they, they couldn't cut their hair or trim their beards. They, they must never cut their hair throughout the time of their vow for they are holy and set apart to the Lord. Uh, as they, they would keep themselves unkept. Their, their hair would grow out and be kind of nasty. Their beard would be nasty. And it was a sign to people that they had taken a vow, a vow of holiness to the Lord. And they didn't care what they looked like. They didn't care what other people thought about them, and that's part of this vow. I'm more concerned with what Christ thinks about me than what the world thinks about me. I'm rather, I'd rather be seen as weird or peculiar than worldly. Seeing alcohol is associated with, with worldliness or sinfulness. Until the time of the vow has been fulfilled, they must let their hair grow long. They must also not go near a dead body during the entire period of their vow to the Lord. Even if the dead person is their own father, mother, brother, or sister, they must not defile themselves for the hair on their head is a symbol of their separation to God. They, they were not to do anything that made them ceremonially unclean by Jewish law. So they had to live a life of purity. And it's interesting to me that one of the elements of that was abstinence from alcohol in terms of a life devoted, set apart, to the Lord. The, these things showed separation from the world and separation from sinfulness. Now, we come to the New Testament and uh, the leaders of the church, the elders in 1 Timothy 3.3 3 says, an elder must not overindulge, literally sit long with wine. Now remember, because wine was diluted in those days, you had to drink more of it if you were going to get drunk. So somebody that sat long with wine was somebody that was getting buzzed. It wasn't like I just had a little bit of, of, uh, of, of wine that was diluted because it, maybe it's a little healthier than water. Water in those days was a little bit sketchy sometimes. It, it wasn't that. If you sat long with wine, your intention was to get buzzed, okay? Elders are not to have a reputation of those that sit long with wine. The, the leaders in the church were not to be associated with that type of of lifestyle. He wasn't to have a reputation of being a drinker. It wasn't like, man, that guy's always got a drink in his hand. If we had any elders that had that reputation, they, they may be out at dinner, out at bars. Every time you see them, they have a beer or they have a drink. Even if it's just one drink, we'd have to deal with that because you're giving the appearance that it's more than that. You're, people are saying about you, man, you, you've always got a drink in your hand. And for leaders in the church, that, that goes not only for elders, then he talks in the next part of the chapter about deacons just servants in the church. And I think that, that dials down, that, that flows down to every Christian. 
That we, we need to care about our reputation. We need to care about what other people think about us. I just want to summarize this by, by reading Romans 13, verses 12 to 14. Paul says, the night is almost gone. This world is coming to an end. And the day of salvation will soon be here. Christ is coming back. Therefore, be serious about your life. Remove your dark deeds. Take them off like dirty clothes. And put on the shining armor of right living. Say right living. Put on an appearance, an awareness, the clothes of holy living and right living. Because we as Christians belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. That needs to be our reputation. We live pure and holy lives under the Lord because we want to lead them to Christ before he comes back. Then he says, don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or sexual promiscuity and immoral living or quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, people need to see Christ in you, not the world in you. Not, not the things he just mentioned. That shouldn't be your reputation. You should be one who is clothed with Christ. And then he says this, and make no provision for your flesh in regard to lust. Make no, don't do anything that's going to contribute or allow lust to be active in your life. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not to be associated as Christians with drinking and partying, and we're not to make provision in our lives for the lusts of the flesh. Number four, alcohol leads to unthinkable consequences. Alcohol leads to unthinkable consequences. There, there are stories in the Bible that, that, that show or reveal the absolute darkness of man's hearts that reveals our depravity and our fallenness and our sinfulness. And, and, and they're in the Bible and they make us really uncomfortable and we're going to read one of those. This is a story that reveals man's depravity, maybe at its lowest. And, and it's, not, it's not a pleasant story, but I want to read it to you. It's a story about Lot and his daughters. Remember, Lot was the, the nephew of Abraham, and Lot was the one that, that was pulled out of Sodom and its wickedness by the angels. And then he went and lived with his daughters in a separate place. And it says, afterward, Lot left Zoar because he was afraid of the people there and went to live in a cave in the mountains with his two daughters. And one day, the older daughter said to her sister, there are no men left anywhere in this entire area, so we can't get married like everyone else. Say like everyone else. What's driving this? They want to be like everyone else. They weren't trusting God with their future. They weren't trusting God with the well-being of their life. So they're going to take it into their own hands. Our father will soon be too old to have children. Come, let's get him drunk with wine and then we will have intercourse with him. That way we will preserve our family line through our father. So the first night, the older daughter goes in, they get him drunk. Uh, first one has intercourse. Next night, younger, younger daughter goes in, same thing. Um, the girls knew there was no way this was going to happen without alcohol. Maybe it was from their experience in days in Sodom where, where they saw these wild parties and orgies fueled by alcohol. And they realized people do crazy stuff, stuff they wouldn't normally do or ordinarily do if they're under the influence of alcohol. If we can get dad drunk, we can get him to do almost anything. What are the unthinkable consequences of this story? Well, an incestuous relationship with his two daughters. They have to live with that and he has to live with that. I can't think of anything more gross and depraved for a father than to live with that. 
second thing is the two sons that were born to the two daughters of Lot, Moab and Ammon, became enemies of Israel. They, they divided the nation. They were constantly at war. Oftentimes, that's what happens in families. Alcohol abuse divides families. It divides marriages. It cause, causes civil war in families. Unthinkable consequences. How many innocent people have died as a result of drunk drivers? How many women and children have been unnecessarily beaten as a result of alcohol? How many rapes are caused by the influence of alcohol? How many unwanted pregnancies result from being drunk? How many sexual affairs have been fueled and influenced by alcohol? How many people have lost their jobs? How many people have lost their marriages? How many people have lost their families? How many people have lost their finances as a result of alcohol? Proverbs 21 says, wine is a mocker, it's a liar, it's deceptive. Strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is what? Not, not very wise. Number five, alcohol can cause people to stumble, specifically other Christians. Some people have a propensity toward alcohol addiction. There are genetic tendencies that contribute to alcoholism, we know that. Our drinking as Christians can encourage people to drink who can't handle alcohol in moderation. Your example of drinking alcohol could cause another Christian brother or sister to stumble. They were enslaved, they're trying to be free, they can't be free if they participate in alcohol, but your example could be the thing that shifts them back into trying it or relapsing in that. Paul says this in Romans 14, 15, and 21. If another believer, another Christian is distressed by what you eat or even drink, you are not acting in love. You're not fulfilling the, the greatest commandment. You're not acting in love if you become a stumbling block to another Christian. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. So, so we're back to, it's my right. It is your right. The Bible doesn't prohibit it. It doesn't. But what about the Christian in your life or the person in your life that's addicted Addicted to drugs or addicted to alcohol. Your right could be the thing that sends them back into slavery. Is that what you want? I came across this this week. I think it's so fitting. Miguel Cabrera is a Hall of Fame baseball player with the Detroit Tigers. And he's retiring this year. And so as he goes around and, and plays for the last time in certain ballparks, those, those baseball club teams give him a gift for his retirement. So look at this. T Tigers Miguel Cabrera, recovering alcoholic, given... Athletics is a farewell gift. What's wrong with that? Well, the first thing is, if you're going to give a Hall of Famer a gift, give him a $1,000 bottle of wine. That's like Boone's Farm or some Strawberry Hill. Is that still around, by the way? That's what I used to drink. Boone's Farm? Anyways. And if it's a $1,000 bottle of wine or a $90 bottle of wine, don't give it to a recovering alcoholic. Don't say, hey, good career. We don't care if you slip back into addiction. We don't care if you relapse. We don't care about you as a person. We just want, we want you to stand up here for a photo op and we want to give you a thousand or a $90 bottle of wine. Isn't Miguel great? Now go drink and fall back into it. Horrible. And I think we do that as Christians. I think when we care more about ourselves, than a brother or sister in Christ that could be struggling with alcohol. We hand them a $90 bottle of wine and say, good luck, pal. Hope it works out for you. Paul says, you're not walking in love. 
You're not walking in love if you're not considering other people in your life that are addicted and struggling and in recovery. Do you have a right to drink alcohol? I believe you do. Is it the wisest choice? I don't believe it is. Considering the horrific consequences we've talked about, why would you even dabble in it? Considering its power to enslave and cause addiction, why would you even get started? Considering the warning about causing someone for whom Christ died to stumble, why would you hold on to your rights? Considering the fact that it inflames the very lust that scripture says to run from, why would you put yourself under its control? Considering that the Bible calls those who come under its influence fools, why not rather be wise? Considering the influence this could have on your children, your grandchildren, and other Christians, why not abstain? I would rather my, my, my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren not drink. I would prefer that. I would prefer that they don't try to drink in moderation. I've seen the damage. I've seen the effects. That would be my preference. So I'm, I'm going to live a life that tries to exemplify and demonstrate that for them. If you choose to drink, you have the right to do that, and I will not judge you. I will love you. I, I will not act in any way weird toward you. If we, if we are out at dinner and you, you want to get a glass of wine, man, I, I will extend grace to you, but just do me one favor. Don't go on social media and don't post pictures of you and your friends exalting alcohol because you don't know who's watching. And you may cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble by your example. If you need help with alcohol abuse, uh, you don't know if you're, if you're addicted uh, Pastor Roger Anderson is in our, our, our concourse at a table. He'd love to talk to you about that, give you some resources to help you understand that. And if you keep telling everyone that you're not addicted, you keep telling everyone you don't have a problem, wh why don't you prove it? Why don't you prove it by going 60 days without alcohol? Prove it to yourself and prove it to your family that this thing hasn't enslaved you. Why don't you stop for a season? Why don't you take a Nazarite vow? for a period of time, and, and show yourself I am not enslaved to alcohol. And if you can't pass that test, you need to get some help. Amen? Stand with me this morning. Lord, we come before you today, and we are grateful for the, the truth that sets us free. I pray for my friends here today, God, those watching online, that you would give us incredible wisdom as we navigate this issue of alcohol, as we navigate it personally, as we navigate it in our families, Lord, we, we just pray for great understanding and discernment. Lord, help us feel your love and your grace. Help us feel your forgiveness today, but help us make wise choices moving forward. In the name of Christ, we pray, amen. If you need prayer this morning, we're gonna have some folks up here to pray with you. Come on up. God bless you.